This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Pauline Morritt tells us what it was like to be a 10-pound pom. Gregor Campbell reports on the Cluther dunking of a local politician. Sarah Gallagher details what the Otago Peninsula used to look like. And we hear the story behind a soldier's tombstone in the Southern Cemetery. Between 1947 and 1975, a total of 77,000 men, women and children arrived from Great Britain under the assisted immigration scheme. Smaller numbers came from the Netherlands and some other European countries. Those from Britain were known as 10-pound poms because that's all they had to contribute to the fair. In 1960, Londoner Pauline Morritt was one of them. I'm looking at a black and white photo taken in 1960. In it, I'm sitting slightly sideways, wearing a pillbox beret, a tailored suit a chiffon scarf draped around my neck, pointed low-heeled shoes and, of course, white gloves. Next to me is my maternal grandmother, who is smiling at me. Then my fiancé, Peter, in collar and tie, navy blazer and grey slacks. And next to him, his mother. Both of them are grinning at the camera. We are sitting in the departure hall of what was then known as London Airport, waiting for our flight for the very long journey to the other side of the world. Peter and I were to be known as Ten Pound Poms. I was born during the London Blitz and my school days began as the Second World War was coming to its close. Looking back for me, I realised growing up there in the 40s and 50s was a stullifying experience of being seen and not heard, knowing one's place, cold, damp winters, a cold, fire-heated house, soot, bombed-out buildings, disused bomb shelters, maimed veterans begging in the streets and the constant smogs known as pea-soupers. I longed for travel, adventure and escape. This did not seem possible as I was unable to save, I could barely manage my bus fare to work on the money I earned. Solution. Why not emigrate? My maternal grandmother was born in Australia and her husband was Canadian. Both settled in England, so I'd heard stories about what was then referred to as the colonies. Peter suggested we apply to go to New Zealand as his older sister had emigrated some years earlier under the £10 scheme. I have to confess I knew little about New Zealand except it was on the other side of the world and I imagined it to have a hot summer climate all year round. We were 18 when we applied, so needed our parents' permission. At our interviews in New Zealand House, we were given glowing accounts of our new country and were shown pictures of detached, colourful, spacious houses with large picture windows and modern kitchens with electric cookers. 
unlike our small semi-detached homes all huddled close together. We didn't marry in London, not because we were young, but under the scheme we would not have been eligible. I discovered much later that New Zealand then had a policy to increase its population and workforce of skilled workers with people of white European descent. A female with limited work skills was not a problem, provided she was young, healthy and had the potential to be a good wife and mother. Peter didn't fulfil the required skills criteria and so his sister and husband sponsored him, providing accommodation and a guaranteed job. We had the required inoculations and a medical examination to confirm we were fit and healthy and after what seemed like forever, we received our departing instructions and identity cards which replaced the need for passports. Much to our surprise, we were to fly. We were to fly by chartered aircraft with Eagle Air. Our plane had flown New Zealand personnel to England to staff a ship for the Navy and rather than fly the planes out empty, the flights were filled with migrants. We received a telegram just before we were ready to leave for the airport, telling us the flight had been delayed 24 hours. This delay was a forecast of what was to come. The journey took almost a week. Most travellers to New Zealand went by ship, a six-week journey. Air travel was still mostly for the elite, where passengers dressed up for flights, as it was considered a formal occasion. Thus, in our attempts to keep up standards, we had chosen what proved to be an unsuitable dress code for a long and difficult journey. Phil and Ernie on the same flight, who were also engaged and became good friends, were similarly dressed, with Ernie carrying a sophisticated-looking rolled umbrella, a going-away present from his dad. Ernie was a baker and Phil a typist, both from Bradford. We were so naive. Most of us had barely left our own neighbourhoods, let alone travelled to such a faraway destination. As this was a chartered flight and not a commercially scheduled one, we were often diverted at the last minute with constant changes of departure times. We would be driven to an airport for imminent takeoff, only to be left all day hanging around in unpleasant conditions. No air conditioning then, of course. In that heat, the pillbox beret, scarf and white gloves were soon removed. The departure halls had very basic facilities, nothing like today's temples of comfort and consumerism. Our first stop was Damascus. We were put up in one of the few Western hotels. Girls shared rooms, as did the boys. These were the days before mixed cohabitation was acceptable. I think we spent much of the time sleeping and reviving. However, I do remember being officially escorted around the old historic part of the city, walking under ancient arches on straw-covered roadways with camels ambling along being led by their masters. At the time, it reminded me of the biblical texts and pictures handed out by our Sunday school teachers. But of course, not the men we saw walking around hand in hand, quite unselfconsciously. We were restricted from roaming freely and there was an air of edgy tension. 
Leaving Damascus provided even greater tension. We were waiting near the runway, ready to board the plane, and Peter, who was interested in planes, took some photos with his little brownie camera. Almost instantaneously, he was arrested and marched off to a nearby building. I was extremely concerned, of course. He was holding our combined limited amount of cash. And what would happen if he was not allowed to board the plane in time for takeoff? I approached an air hostess for help, explaining what had happened. She expressed no sympathy whatsoever and told me we had been instructed not to take photographs. This was news to me. The air hostesses seemed rather disdainful of us young migrant Brits. These was, in those days, a prestigious job, and these women were hired for their good looks, hourglass figures and glamour. I didn't feel glamorous at all, even wearing white gloves. While we waited, I realised why there was a further delay. I saw what I assumed was an engineer with a square tin container standing under the fuselage towards the front of our plane, catching what looked like slowly dripping oil. It was an old prop aircraft. Inside, while flying, it was incredibly noisy. Just as we were about to board, much to my relief, Peter walked out of the building, grinning from ear to ear, having had a nice time drinking, for the first time for him, strong Turkish coffee, with the armed officer while waiting for the film to be developed and any sensitive pictures removed. Apparently, it was claimed that there was a Russian MiG jet fighter landing at the time. We had little political awareness, apart from the odd newsreels we saw at home, and we were mystified by the significance of all the fuss. Our next stop was Karachi, another unlisted stop in the original schedule that we had been sent from New Zealand House. Here the layover was for many hours. We were unable to leave the airport because we hadn't had the necessary inoculations for this part of the world. It was a miserable time. We were all tired and many of us unwell. I passed out at one point, probably due to dehydration, the heat and the dire food on the plane. While we sprawled about on hard seats, somebody in the group looked up above our heads. Panic, as the person pointed out all the little lizards that were crawling across the high plaster ceiling. The lizards were quite harmless, of course, and good for catching flies. Another new experience for wide-eyed young Brits. Finally, we took off again, this time landing in Colombo, Ceylon, now known as Sri Lanka. We stayed in the old Colonial Galliface Hotel, right next to the sea. I intended to enjoy myself for the first time, and as it turned out, the last time on this trip. A group of us even got to a nightclub. Ernie and Phil, along with the rolled umbrella, could be seen on the hotel's lawn sunning themselves. The lyrics of Mad Dogs and Englishmen comes to mind. I think most of us suffered some degree of sunburn. Despite our seemingly glamorous surroundings, I still recall the poverty that was so evident on our drive to the hotel in the airport bus. 
another overnight stop in Darwin. This time, no glamour at all. We were billeted in some sort of barracks with very basic facilities and strange, creepy crawlies in all shapes and sizes dancing and dancing around in the bathrooms. There was a scream or two from unsuspecting girls attempting to avoid creatures that might sting or bite. As we had no means of transport, we never got to see anything of Darwin itself. But I did thoroughly enjoy the ride to and from the airport and seeing the dry red earth and thought of the stories my grandmother had told me about growing up in Australia. A long haul to Brisbane for yet another arduous airport layover and then finally the last flight and on into Auckland. More barracks, more bunk beds with dampish grey military blankets and it was cold. Pauline Morritt recalling her adventures as a £10 pom on her way to New Zealand. In the 19th century, local political issues could generate strong passions. Gregor Campbell has been looking at how this affected a central Otago politician who has left his name to one of Central's areas. Vincent Pike's story is a filmic one. Born in England, he went to the goldfields of Victoria in the 1850s and there was a miner, storekeeper and politician. Moving to Otago in the 1860s, he was made Goldfields Commissioner and prepared the regulations to govern the goldfields from Dunedin rather than locally. In the 1870s, he was in Dunedin, a newspaper publisher in 1877 in local politics, elected to represent the Kawarau riding in central Otago. It was then that a certain event occurred, as reported by the Dunstan Times. Cromwell and its county chairman. When it became known by wire on Saturday that Mr Vincent Pike had given his casting vote in favour of Clyde as the headquarters of the county, notwithstanding his oft and strongly implied intention to use his vote and influence on behalf of Cromwell, the public indignation at his conduct was most strongly aroused and the member for Kawarau most roundly condemned. The detestation of his action found vent in the shape of an effigy most grotesquely got up and which was suspended by the neck in front of the town hall. The town bellman paraded the streets, giving forth proclamation of the sentence passed upon the culprit and inviting the citizens to witness and take part in his ignominious punishment. At the appointed hour, a band of music and assemblage of some hundreds of people congregated in front of the hall. The body was cut down, roped to a ladder, and dragged through the streets amid the hoots and jeers of the populace. On arriving at the bridge, a mock funeral oration was delivered, the band played a suitable dirge, and the execrated remains were tossed over the parapet amid universal groans. The figure shot gracefully the couple of hundred feet to the waters below, on whose bosom it sailed peacefully in the direction of Clyde. Such is a brief account of the proceedings, which, however foolish in themselves, tend to show that the action of the county chairman was contemptuously regarded by a deceived and disappointed people.
Vincent Pike continued his career in local Otago politics, becoming a strong supporter of the Otago Central Railway and the Roxburgh Amalgamated Mining and Sluicing Company, which dammed the Terriot River and turned a place called Dismal Swamp into Lake Onslow, the largest artificial lake in the world at the time. The name was that of the Governor-General of the day, but also came from a remark made by Pike that the work on the dam was getting on slow. Vincent Pike never made his fortune, but he made his name, and the county named after him lasted for 112 years until local body amalgamation in 1989 erased it. His remains can be found in Dunedin's Northern Cemetery. And I am the still-moving remains of Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Today, the Otago Peninsula is not clad with native bush, but it was quite different in the 19th century when the first European settlers began to carve out their farms. This report from Sarah Gallagher. It has been said that Otago Peninsula is windy nine days out of ten. Described as almost an island, the peninsula was formed by the great Dunedin volcano between 16 and 11 million years ago. Within it lies a band of limestone that is even older, stretching from Te Ahikaroro, Seal Point, across the harbour to Dowling Bay. Tradition tells us the Atua Tu Te Rakifanoa discovered this wrecked celestial waka of Auraki, or the South Island, and carved out places for people to live, including Maopoko, Otago Peninsula. The harbour was formed by the Tanifa Matamata, who turned to stone by the sun and became Pukimakamaka Saddle Hill. Otako is home to Waitaha, Rapuwai, Katihawia and Katimamui. In the early 19th century, around 2,000 people were recorded as living on the peninsula, but this declined abruptly after the first European visit in 1838, which brought disease. Despite huge land losses, Kaitahu have been continuously resident at Otako since the 17th century. The peninsula was once heavily forested with large tōtara, rimu, beach and matai, and was populated by four species of moa. Early paintings by O'Brien, Chevalier and Welch show the original dense covering of bush. The forested land was largely cleared for farms by settlers in the late 1800s. The following accounts of two residents reveal details of the landscape at the time. Walter Riddle hailed from Dunfries in Scotland and emigrated to Dunedin with his wife Wilhelmina in 1862. They lived at Sandymount from 1864 to 1901. Walter was a joiner by trade and came to Dunedin with a reference from the Duke of Buccleuch one of Charles II's illegitimate offspring. When the riddles arrived, the bush was thick and difficult to navigate. Entries from his diary provide an economical but arresting description of life. March 28, 1865. Paid Carter £3 for bringing us our baggage and seven fells to our new house, which we called Ivy Bank. It took us ten days to carry our things through the bush a mile from the end of the road. Riddle spent a great deal of his time working the land, clearing bush and cutting timber for days, weeks, months on end. His diary sees him variously working on his own property or working on the properties of other settlers. Labour was bartered for skills and debts were repaid through clearing bush and sawing timber, 
which he used for fencing, building houses, cow buyers, pig pens, butter churns, and occasionally coffins. He often reported clearing or sawing all day for weeks at a time for someone else and then grubbing ground and planting potatoes at night on his own land, sometimes by candlelight. April 15, 1865. Have been busy sawing timber all week and excavating for an addition to our house which consists of one room, 14 foot by 12 foot, built of fern tree. Bought from Robert Bagri one tonne of potatoes for five pounds and took four days to carry them through the bush. October 11th. Finished Cochrane Weir's house this day. I have wrought at it without intermission and the buyer since 10 August. Drew plans for a church and subscribed five pounds towards building it. Given the amount of time he laboured clearing bush and the many hours spent sawing and building, it is notable Riddle did not record his impressions of the landscape, the flora and fauna, the trees, even for their qualities and material. Clearing was variously described as a dour job, slow and tedious and awful. A roving reporter in 1870 who was en route to visit McDonald's lime kilns verifies the nature of the bush. The country here is covered with heavy timber, comprising totara and all the pines, and some of the trees are very large. The undergrowth is very dense, and supplejack being particularly plentiful, rendering progress through the bush at times very tedious. In a moment reminiscent of Dr Seuss's story of the Lorax, Riddle notes the felling of the last of the large trees on his land, 33 yards long and four and a half feet through. In contrast to Riddle's diary, Jane Dick's memoir compiled by Hardwick Knight joyously recalls memories of the landscape from when she was a child. Jane was born in 1867 and from the age of five spent time on the peninsula with her grandparents, Mr and Mrs Robert Dick, who had also emigrated in 1862. The family home faced onto Whitcliffe Bay, looking out to the ocean and over the flat land of Orkia and its tremendous pyramids of stone. It was almost impossible to describe the scenery, it being so grand. The bush was filled with birds and the grey robins were quite tame. I used to take some crumbs with me and stroll along a track hanging with ferns and all sorts of greenery and try to be friends with the robins. They were grey with a big black eye. Tuis and bellbirds and parakeets were plentiful. The bush was glorious and had a lovely smell and there were lots of flowers such as clematis, fuchsia, kakabeek and loya, a very sweet smelling flower. It was a great delight to spend time in the bush with the birds, ferns and all else. There was a connection between the Riddles and the Dick family. A large outcrop of limestone ran through Riddle's land and in 1865 he mentions helping a lime burner, James MacDonald, test lime on his land. Jane Dick's uncle William, who was a stonemason, built a kiln on Riddle's land. This is the kiln you can see today on the Sandy Mount Road. Kilns were built near to quarries and often included tramways to move the stone from quarry to kiln and kiln to a loading or storage area. 
Dick also designed and built a huge kiln for MacDonald further down the slope on land he owned. Further still down were the Glenmore Lime Kilns run by William Robertson and his sons. As well as being a useful building material, limestone was quarried for burning to create quick lime, which could be used in both the agricultural and roading and construction industries. The lime kilns, now dormant for over 90 years, are testament to one of the early European industries on the peninsula. The Sandymount Lime Kiln Complex is a registered Category 1 historic place, and you can find this story on our heritage list online at heritage.org.nz. This is Sarah Gallagher reporting for Heritage Matters. Gregor Campbell can never pass a tombstone without reading it. Here's a story about one he found in the Southern Cemetery. In Dunedin's Southern Cemetery is a rare epitaph. Most Great War soldiers commemorated but not buried in local cemeteries have as their place of passing somewhere in France and nothing more. Corporal William Alexander Brown's passing is noted by the words, killed in action on Passchendaele Ridge whilst helping his comrade. The date of his death is October 12, 1917. The date is instantly recognisable to many people. It is the day of the assault on Bellevue Spur, the most disastrous day in New Zealand military history. The spur was defended by German machine guns and concrete fortifications and surrounded by barbed wire. To reach them, the men of the Otago Regiment had to cross a shallow valley with a small creek. Usually, the forts would be targeted by a heavy artillery barrage before the assault. This was not the case on October 12. Days of rain preceded it. The small valley, whose drainage, perfected by Belgian farmers over centuries and ruined by shellfire over months, was a swamp of knee-deep mud. The rain had prevented the moving and placing of artillery, and those that had arrived had no solid platforms from which to fire. The Otago men, and others on the day, looked with dismay at their target, sitting untouched by artillery preparation, but fully alert to the threat preparing to cross no man's land. Some of the shells that were fired dropped short onto the Otago's trenches, The attack began at 5.25am. It was a massacre. It is estimated that more than 300 men of the Otago Infantry Regiment died on that day with many injured. More than 800 New Zealanders in all died that day or shortly after, and William Brown was one of those men. Later, an eyewitness returned to Otago, and his story was published in the Otago Daily Times in April 1918. Particulars have just come to hand from Lieutenant Thompson of Belclutha regarding the manner in which Private W.A. Brown met his death at Passchendaele Ridge. It appears that Private Brown and a mate were in a shell hole and in another shell hole was Corporal Hardy. Hardy was wounded and Private Brown went to his assistance and after helping him returned to his original cover. Hardy called out again for assistance, and although remonstrated with for the great risk he ran, Brown immediately started to go to his corporal and was shot through the back, expiring immediately. Private Brown was well known throughout Otago and Southland as a commercial traveller when he enlisted.
I am honoured to be the teller of Private Brown's story for Heritage Matters, Gregor Campbell. The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30am and replayed on the following Sunday at 7pm. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand. Check out visitheritage.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.